Welcome to First Online with Fran's There's No Place Like Art. I'm Fran McGarry, podcast host and arts advocate of the healing power of the arts. If you frequently use social media, you've probably seen the hashtag MeToo on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other sites. What started out as a way for survivors of sexual harassment and sexual assault and sexual bullying to bond and share their stories has become a global movement, a significant changes, both social and legal. What's more, the movement has allowed survivors to feel supported while simultaneously initiating a national and worldwide conversation about the widespread issues surrounding harassment, assault, and the changes that need to be made. Thus, the silence surrounding sexual harassment and assault is being broken. Many are now open to and passionate about discussing the issues. Through my podcast, my goal is to further those conversations about these issues and more so that creative expression can heal the wounded self. Everybody has secrets. Everybody. Viola Davis's autobiography, Finding Me, is an introspective look to the truth of how our stories are often not given close examinations. Secrets, she says, are what swallow us. Either we die with them and let them eat us up, or we put them out there, wrestle with them, or they wrestle with us until we reconcile. My guest today is Joan Kane director, producer, dramaturg, writer, actor, whose secret of sexual assault is exposed through her one-woman show, Almost 13. The play dramatizes the memories of a young girl emotionally broken by the people and events in her Brooklyn neighborhood. Welcome, Joan. So glad to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Fran. Thank you for inviting me. The play takes place in 1969. Yep. And this is a time that when bad things happened, you kept your mouth shut and you prayed that no one would find out. And yet, for our conversation today, it could very well reflect the times we are living through in 2022, where distrust prevails through disinformation fomenting conspiracy theories and lies. And you realized at some point in your life that the abuse on your body and mind caused a breakdown. And to get to the breakthrough, you chose to bravely and courageously confront your secret and expose it so that others could heal with the assurance that love prevails. That, as Viola recounted in her book, a life worth living can only be born from radical honesty and the courage 
to shed facades and be you. How does her story resonate with yours? Well, I think art heals. I think it's a medium by which we can heal ourselves and other people around us. I performed my show last night at 59 East 59th Street Theaters in the East to Edinburgh Festival. And there were people afterwards who had seen it, total strangers, and came up to me and said, your story is so poignant that you're very courageous for telling it. And because you've told your story, I feel like I can now tell mine. And they weren't artists. I asked them, are you artists? And they're like, no, but I can share it with my family. And one woman, she was in her 60s. So it's a way of saying, yes, you can tell your story. You can tell it on your own terms. And you can get those secrets out. There were so many secrets. I grew up in this household where you didn't tell anybody anything about your your family life. Yeah. Because they would think badly of your parents. And yes, it was that period of time in the 50s and 60s where you didn't let your secrets out because if you did, you'd be judged. And and then there was a lot of shame involved in it, in something bad that had happened to you. And I had horrible things happen to me. And I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. After the incident of me um, being accosted, I, I didn't talk. I didn't talk for two years. I became a select mute. How old were you? I was 11 years old. Oh my God. And And basically, I just stopped. I just stopped talking. And there was one person I talked to, and it was my my older brother, Chrissy. And he helped me talk about love. I talk about in the play, I use the the metaphor of kunsuki, which is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. And what they do is they take these pieces, instead of throwing them away, they put them back together and they use a special glue, a gold glue. And after it's dry, it takes a while to dry and you got to be patient. And they put it back together with this glue and they shine it and it becomes it becomes shiny and bright and it becomes even more beautiful than before it was broken. So, but you have to look at the pieces and you have to put them back together. And that's what my brother helped me to do. He, and he was the only person I spoke to with, would speak with. I wouldn't speak with teachers, uh, my father, my mother, nobody, my aunts, my uncles, only my older brother. And that's what a select mute is about because he was the only person I felt safe with because after it happened, I felt shattered. I was scared of everyone and everything. And it took me his love and his guidance to get through it. And I also had a a teacher in school who, she was a nun, Sister Mary Killian. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Great name for her. um, She was patient with me and very, very, I don't want to say coddling, but she understood. I never told her what happened. And what she did was she said, you know, I think you would be great if you went to the high school performing arts. Because before it happened, I was always in school and I was always acting out. And I I had this huge mouth. I would, she told me my mouth was so loud. I could, I could wake up God, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's funny because Viola Davis talks about that too. You know, in her book, how she had this mouth, you know, she was eight years old and she had the, you know, the mouth of a sewer, you know, (laughs) huge, huge. I was always talking. I was always out there. I was always acting, you know, when we would do our little skits in class. So it was through going to the high school performing arts and becoming an actor. It was part of my journey. It was part of me healing. And I never, I didn't know it at the time. 
I mean, I'm looking back on it. I'm in my 60s. I'm looking back on this, you know, what has happened throughout the years and all the therapists I've been to. I, I was with three amazing therapists who really helped me to understand the trauma. Not until I got to the La Mama Umbria writing workshop with Brendan Jacob Jenkins, I, um, I started writing the story. I started writing it. And that's when I decided to dramatize it. And I play 12 different characters, including the ladies in my neighborhood called the Biddies. The Biddies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I play an Irish priest. I play my mother. I play myself as a little girl. I play my older brother. I mean, there's, there's a, a variety of characters that I play and I've, I've brought to life. It was interesting playing my mom because for many years I was very upset with her. And being able to play her, I was in her feet. I was in her shoes. So I saw the difficulties that she had and the conflicts in herself and why she was so, so uh, hard and so um, hard. That's the only way I can, I can look at it. Because she was a single mother raising her, her kids by herself. So, and in that, that time period, women did not get paid. They got paid horrible wages. You know, and she worked two jobs. She worked at, during the day as a secretary and at night she worked as a cleaning lady in Macy's department store. I mean, so there was she really became very um, how can I say this, you know, very hardened to life and to any sympathy. She gave us no sympathy whatsoever. You fell down. You had to pick yourself back up and wipe yourself off, you know, right. Wipe that knee off and keep moving. And I think, you know, those that sense of adversity that she dealt with and the sense of survival and how do you deal with, with surviving? She instilled that in me. She did instill that in me. What's interesting for me with this whole play is that I wanted to really put out there to the world that you can have horrible things happen to you, but you can survive them. You can survive, you can become, and you can thrive. You know, eventually I got married. I earned two master's degrees. I got married to a great guy. We had two sons, raised them. I'm now a grandma. You know? Yeah, we know we know about that, boy. Yeah. <laughs> we love being grandmas. Yeah, you know, but I, I was able to make my life work. I was able to, and again, I had a lot of support. The glue that held me together was the love of people around me and the professionals too. You talk so, about you know, when you played all these different characters, that's intriguing to me as, as an actor to shift from one character's voice to another character's voice. Tell me more about how you constructed those transitions. Like, how did you know, you know, the biddies are going to be here and the scene with the Puerto Rican boy and witnessing the murder? I don't want to give too much away from your show, yeah. but you know, how did you, how did you construct the narrative and make those shifts? Well, I've been developing this play for five years and I've done it in increments where I did it first as a stage reading at La Mama. I wrote it as a huge play with 18 characters that were played by 18 different actors. I loved it as that. And I hope one day I can go back and rewrite that and it will become an event onto itself. But I knew that I needed to tell the story for me. And that's why I decided to make it a solo show. I've directed eight different solo shows for various people. And I decided to use the critique, not the critique, but the, the techniques 
that I have used in developing shows with other folks. Those techniques are improvisation, really getting to the heart or the essence of the character. And I do it a lot with movement. Movement is how I got into the characters. And when I work with other folks, that's the way we do it too. What do you mean the movement? So gesture. Gesture is really important. So for instance, uh, uh, Mrs. McClary, she's the head biddy and her gesture is to smoke a cigarette. And she smokes a cigarette. She talks like this and her voice <laughs> is like this. And she's <laughs> like the- Marge Simpson's sisters. Totally, totally. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about Marge Simpson. I was thinking about she had this gravelly voice from yeah. from smoking, and then you have Mrs. Schwartz. Oh no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. She won't. Tony and the boys will take care of her. You know, and, and then you had Mrs. Bruni. What do I tell you? I told you nobody's taking care of her. That's the why. That's the why she's behaving the way she is. You know, the Italian grandma, and they yeah. all sat on the stoop. And these were these were the archetypes of the people that I grew up with. They would sit on the stoop every day gossiping about everyone and everything. I can relate. And to this day, yeah. type of uh, characters, they're not stereotyped. No, they are- they're not. They're real. They have families. They have lives. They have desires, dreams, and loves. And I wrote bios for every one of them. Every one of them have detailed, multi-page bios. Joan, on that, on those bios, just to connect it to our shared experience, at Young Playwrights, Inc. And we had an exercise that was called the need to tell. Right. How did that knowledge facilitate your ability to write those monologues, write those bios? I think because I would see when I worked at Young Playwrights Incorporated, you know, it was, I would see what the students came up with. And because they came up with what they came up with, the need to tell, I think somewhere in my subconscious that I use that technique also in these characters, I was able to everything. It was all a combination of my life experiences as a teacher, as a teaching artist in, in different, like with young playwrights, neighborhood playhouse, you know, all my, even myself as an actress, because I hadn't acted before this for 25 years. So all those experiences I brought in, my directing experience, my dramaturgy experience, and I brought it all in and I brought it all to this, this piece. And I have a really wonderful director, Bruce Kramer, who had <laughs> helped me to shape it. And, and Bruce, full disclosure here, is my husband. We have a small independent theater company called Ego Actus, which we produce. And, and, you know, he also writes and he's a lighting designer. So, you know, we know the elements of theater. You know, we know all of the elements of theater because we've done them. We've designed, we've produced, directed, written. So I was able to bring all of that in here. And again, his partnership has been instrumental and his support. There are times when I was really, really like, I don't want to do this. It's like, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. I also worked with Kat Falou as a dramaturg. And there were pieces in here that I didn't want in here. And the the scene where I'm accosted, I said, no, I can't put that in there. I don't want to put that in there. And she says, it needs to be there, Joan. And again, she held my hand. You know, so as I, as I was saying earlier, I have this amazing support. And people believing in me as an artist. And also to catch you for you, she is another workshop leader from Young Playwrights Inc. So you had that intersection. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And her, her nurturing 
of me yeah. with the piece. It's like, you can do this. This is something that needs to be here, Joan. Yeah. Uh, you so, said the most important thing a woman can do is tell the truth about her life. What truths did you discover about yourself in the journey, you know, that you took in working on this project? One of the major truths that I, I found out about myself is I'm pretty tough. <laughs> I'm pretty tough. <laughs> I, can, I can attest to that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a survivor and I can, I can, I, I don't let a lot stop me. I make sure that I mentioned before, you know, feeling the hurt, you know, the damage exists. It's there. I'm not denying it, but I'm not letting it control my life now. I'm acknowledging it. But one of what you're saying is so true about artists, particularly theater people. What is it that we want to go to the edge, step on that edge and take a leap? What is it? about that theatrical knowledge, that ability to say, this is really hard, this is really painful, and I want to do it. I think I have to do it. I have to do it. I had to tell my story. I needed to be able to say, look, I grew up in a time period in New York City, in Brooklyn, where racism was horrific and it was rampant. And back then, we were only talking about racism being part of the South. No, in the North, it was really, it was rampant. It was right out there. I needed to talk about racism. I needed to talk about sexual assault. I needed to talk about survival, how you can survive after horrific things happening to you. And I think it's relevant today. I think we're in a state in our world where so much is happening, not only with climate change, but our political system. And I wanted to I wanted to give some hope to folks. I wanted to say, look, yeah, you can do it. You can go. You can push ahead. Tell your stories. Make sure that your truth is out there. So I don't know about other people in the theater. I know for me, it's very important that my truth is out there. Because I think truth is what really sets us free. I know that's a cliche, but it did. It set me free. I wasn't in my denial mode anymore. I was, I was open. <laughs> I started to blossom. You found yourself. Yeah, I found my own voice. For so many years, I worked directing and bringing other people's voices alive with the plays that I direct. And now I had my own voice that I was bringing alive, that I was putting out here on this table and saying, look, let's examine my story. It's been exhilarating for me. What you're saying, of course, is, is extremely compelling. And I want to go back to what you said earlier. And that is sister, whatever her name was. She saw something in you and encouraged you. And you were both theater educators. We know this. I have seen how theater transformed the arts, transformed young people's lives. So shout out to theater educators. You know, what was it about that teacher? Let's put her on a pedestal here. Well, Sister Mary Killian was her name. If I was going to say anything about Sister Mary Killian, it was like she listened. And she just didn't listen with her ears. She listened with her heart. 
And every kid was an individual to her. She didn't treat us all the same. And we had a huge class and she listened to us. And at that point, I wasn't talking much, (laughs) but she knew, she knew how to get to me. She knew how to open me up and help me heal. She was an amazing experience because she wasn't just shaming me and blaming me and telling me I was wrong and stupid. And, you know, like so many of the educators back then, they didn't, they didn't know how to, they didn't know pedagogy. You know, they were just thrown into a classroom. She knew how kids thought. And it's a gift. It's Not a gift. everybody can teach. Yeah. And that's, that's a, it's so interesting that you're talking about this friend because last night a, a young man came to my, my show, Leo Randazzo, and he had been my, student teacher when I was teaching oh my <laughs> and he had and wow. now, now it's 15 years later and he had studied with me and he said Joan I always do what you do and I said what Leo <laughs> <laughs> and he said I always listen to the students and I treat them as individuals so it, it goes on you know it's it didn't just stay with systemary killing I learned that valuable lesson so when I was teaching I was able to bring that to my practice and I'm that way as a director too I love to listen to my actors to my designers and bring them all together it's a community we're creating as a community it's not a top-down hey I'm the director you do as I say it's more of a we're all here to together to tell this story and let's all have our thumbprints on it (laughs) you know I can attest to that having worked with you during the pandemic you know survival is insufficient it was one of the first readings that we had to figure out how to do it um, via zoom and you did exactly you listened to each of us and we were able to make it live make it real for our audiences. You talked about racism a little bit too. I'm going to circle back to that. Well, in my show, I grew up in a neighborhood called South Brooklyn. And my part of the neighborhood, it's now known as Park Slope. And this was Mm -hmm. before the real estate developers and gentrification. And in my part of the neighborhood, which was past Fifth Avenue, it, and this is in Brooklyn, our neighborhood was filled with uh, Jews, Irish, and Italian. A lot of us were first generation, a very working class. And on the other side of Fifth Avenue were the African-Americans, uh, the Puerto Ricans, all people who weren't Jewish, Italian, and Irish. And you didn't intermingle with each other, did not intermingle each other. We had a uh, a horrible street gang that was, they would roam the streets keeping order and and menacing and keeping anybody out of the neighborhood who were not ethnically like us. And one day this kid, Juan, who was Spanish, came into our neighborhood and the leader of the gang was infurious about it. He was, he was furious. He was just, and I'm not going to give too much away, but he assaulted him too. You're really calling out but not accusing what you're doing is you're creating a story that opens up people's minds and to examine this is who we are. This is where we came from. And this is where we are today. I just want to, I want to get from you. What drives you? What makes you, I mean, you're heading to 
Edinburgh next week. How do you sustain that focus, that commitment to your message, your need to tell? I think part of it is the way my audience is a reaction, reacting. They're really enthusiastic and loving the story that's being told and loving my performance. And I don't mean to brag. I'm, I'm saying that that is what is giving, feeding me a lot of energy. Also, I pace myself. I make sure that I I'm well rested and I'm well fed and I'm hydrated so I can go on stage and I can perform. But psychologically and emotionally, what is feeding me is telling the story, telling the truth, telling this has happened. Look, holding the mirror up to society and saying, look, this is happening. This happened in the 60s. It's happening now. Let's let's talk about it. Let's put it on the table. Let's have discussions. Because I really believe that the more you talk about it and the more you open the suitcase and look at the dirty laundry, <laughs> you're able to then heal it. You're able to then wash it and say, no, this we can't live this way as a species. We're gonna we're gonna you know decimate ourselves. We're decimating our planet right now. We need to talk about it. We need to stop with the denial. And like what Viola Davis was saying, your secrets can destroy you. My secrets almost destroyed me. And I have a son who won't come and see this. He won't come and see it. And it's not, he's read it. He said, I don't want to see what happened to you, Ma. I don't want to see the violence that was inflicted on you. And I understand that. And some people it does affect them. I mean, we had to put in the program, you know, there is violence in this play. So people can make the decision on whether or not they want to come. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, and looping into that, Joan, where we are today, you know, how does your performance inform the divisive culture that we are living in? Like a follow-up to your show? Like, have you thought about having a curriculum guide or a panel discussion, or some kind of activism that you can implement to, you know, raise the bar, raise the awareness. Like not just say this is this is what's happening, but it's like, how can you take this show and say, this is how we can make change? I've actually I've thought about that, Fran. I've actually thought about that, and I'm not I'm not clear how yet. I'm going to do that. But I do know one thing that to show about the divide, I show what happens to people who are divided. My neighborhood was divided. And as a result of that, someone got killed because of the extreme hatred, because of race, and because this person was an immigrant and wasn't of their same ethnicity. That is, to me, one of the greatest detriments of division is the the hurt how it hurts people, how it destroys people. It almost destroyed my life. It destroyed other people's lives. You know, Juan's grandmother was affected by that. He lived with his grand. You know, it's like when you do an act of violence, it's not just one person who gets hurt. Right. It's how it ripples out. It's like a it's like throwing a stone into a river. How does that how does that reverberate? And that's what we have to be looking at. And that's what I hope people are taking away from the show, from seeing it. And yes, I would love to be doing some programming around it. That's something that I have to 
give more thought to and maybe you can help me because I know you're I, yeah. programming. Yeah. So, um, that's what was going through my head. You know, this would make a great educational uh, curriculum yeah. uh, package that you could take to schools and continue these conversations. So our conversation is coming to a close. And what I want to know is what are you most excited about when you head off to Edinburgh next week? I don't have just one thing. I'm so excited to go back to Edinburgh. <laughs> this will be our third time. We're performing at the Greenside Infamy Space. The people in Edinburgh are just delightful. They're great audiences. They're incredible audiences. I'm excited that I'm going to be performing for 18 performances, eight straight, 18 performances Yay. in a row. So Yay. I'm going to be living it and loving it. I love going to other countries too. And I love seeing other cultures and talking to people who are different than me. So it's a global conversation. You're going to have a ball. I know you're going to be great. And thank you for having this talk with me. You know, we just adore each other. <laughs> and on the blog will be the information about your show. I wish you all the very best. Break a leg, girl. Love to Bruce and safe journey. Thank you so much, Fran. Thank you for all your support. I love talking with you. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by Marsh Hair Media and recorded at Wheat Sheet Studio Productions.